This is the Citizen of Heaven podcast. I am Hal Hammonds, and I am a Citizen of Heaven, and I am your embedded correspondent in Satan's world. I bring you this message of hope from Pensacola, Florida. This is report number one, dated April 9th in the year of our Lord 2019. I bid God's grace and peace to all my fellow sojourners here in this earthly plane. I remain sound in body, alert in mind, and energized in spirit. I am pleased to bring you this report of my recent labelers in the Lord. Here is a synopsis. I've been preaching about fear, what to fear, what not to fear, and how living your life in fear can actually make you fearless. I've been reading Plain Talk by Robert Turner, a collection of articles from one of the great figures of my childhood, a man I am trying to emulate today. I've been hearing preachers are becoming less and less satisfied with the way they've been doing things, and that may be a good thing. Or not. I've been playing modern board games, which are about as far away from Sorry and Monopoly as Elijah was from Ahab and Jezebel. Are you ready? Here we go! This is what I've been preaching. Fear not. Do not fear. Be strong and courageous. Over and over again, the people of God are told to act fearlessly, to live fearless lives, to live without fear. And yet they are also told by the one who told them not to fear, to fear him. That seems a little incongruous, doesn't it? How can it be that people who are to live fearlessly are also to live in the fear of God? And how can these two concepts be laid side by side so many times in the scriptures? Well, I think the secret is to understand the nature of the fear and the nature of the object of our fear. The fear of God is part reverence, part terror, part honor, part worship, But I think in a nutshell, more than anything else, fear of God is acknowledgement of his sovereign authority. Acknowledging that he is the one who calls the shots. He is the one who makes the rules. And that we want it that way. And that we appreciate it being that way. That we do not want to rule our own lives. We are privileged to turn our lives over to him. To trust in him for our salvation. To trust in him for our guidance. To trust in him for our hope after this life is over, to believe that he knows best for our lives and that we can and will be best if we trust in him and go where he tells us to go. We can have complete and utter confidence in him this way. This is what the fear of the Lord does for us. It empowers us to live fearless lives. It empowers us to live in confidence, to live in assurance, to live without the quaking and and worry and just general fear that characterizes so many people here in this earthly life. Because ultimately we are not living physical lives. We're living spiritual lives. That is the, the crux of it all. Jesus points this out in Luke chapter 12, verse 4 and following. I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I would tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two cents? And uh, 
Yet not one of them is forgotten before God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. There it is. Do not fear. God loves you. God cares about you. God sent his son to die for you. God is not willing that you should perish. God wants you to be saved. He wants you to spend an eternity with him in heaven. This is our heavenly father, after all. That image means something, or certainly should. That he cares for us, just like our earthly fathers care for us. And just like with our earthly fathers, when we are in the most trouble, when we are the most desperate, when we have messed our own lives so much, the place where we want to be more than any other place is in his arms. Because we are safe there. Because we are loved there. And yes, he does punish. And yes, he does exact judgment upon us. But we have confidence that when we are within his grasp, when we are within his fellowship, nothing bad can happen to us. He protects everything that we truly value. Because we are living in the spirit. We are not living ultimately physical lives. We have set our mind on the things that are above, not on the things that are on the earth. Our life is hidden with Christ in God. Colossians 3 verses 1 through 4 tell us that. Everything that's important in our lives is in God. Our spiritual treasure is laid up in heaven. And because of that, God, having complete control over spiritual things, protects us and nurtures us and provides for us and gives us assurance that the problems of this life, as real as they may be, as common as they may be, as terrifying as they may be, they cannot touch anything that we really value because ultimately all of these fears are fleshly. All of these fears are of the earth. Jesus says it in verse 4 there, I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more they can do. People of, of the flesh would scoff at that. All they can do is kill you. Well, what is there other than killing you? That's, that's your entire life. See, but our life is hidden with Christ in God. Our life has been already forfeited in this life. We gave it up so that we would receive a better life, an eternal life from Jesus. The one who loses his life for my sake in the Gospels shall save it. That's what he promises us. And yes, the things of this life do affect us because we do live in a physical plane temporarily. In the flesh, we do occupy fleshly space. And we do have fleshly problems and fleshly enemies. But ultimately, we have confidence that nothing that we do, nothing that we encounter, no enemies that come upon us from day to day, from year to year, can possibly touch spiritual things because they are not spiritual. They are fleshly. And because God loves us and because God is sheltering us and taking care of us, we can live fearlessly. There is nothing that the world can do to harm us. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things come, nor height, nor depth, any other creature. None of these things can separate us from the love of God, which is Christ Jesus our Lord, Paul tells us in, in Romans. All we have to do is trust in him. All we have to do is lean on him. Go where he tells us to go. Do what he says do. Value the things that he values. Live in fear. And if you can find that fear, if you can give your entire heart over to the fear of God, you will find that there is nothing left in your heart to fear anything else. You're just too busy, too occupied, fearing God to fear the future or to fear loss or to fear death itself, fear failure. None of these things can touch the child of God when he's living in the fear of God. Anyway, that's what I've been preaching. 
This is what I've been reading. One of the blessings growing up as a Christian in Central Texas was that I had access, though I did not appreciate it at the time, to a, a funny little man in Burnett County named Robert Turner, a friend of our family, one whose circular plain talk was on our family's coffee table every week for my entire childhood. Uh, I didn't read it very much. Uh, if I'm eight years old, ten years old, I'm too busy reading my Flash comic books and, and things of that nature to bother with two legal-sized pieces of paper, white, folded in the middle, no graphic art, no nothing really interesting at all. Nothing to grab the eye of, a, of an eight-year-old, at least. And in that way, I, I regret not having a better appreciation for the blessing that was mine, the opportunity that was mine. I'm not sure exactly how much an eight-year-old can be blamed for, for not seeking out Bible truth on that level. Nevertheless, when I became an adult and I realized who Robert Turner was and what a tremendous privilege it was and blessing it was to have access to that level of spiritual knowledge and wisdom, I sought it out a lot more often. And when I came to have children of my own, I tried to expose them a little bit as I had opportunity to Brother Turner, not necessarily so that they would be, you know, have his hand laid on them and they'd be stronger Christians by osmosis or something like that. But, but I wanted to put them in the position that I was in so that they would have memories to fall back on when they would pick up plain talk themselves at some point and read it. And remember, that's the, the man that my dad introduced me to. That's that man in, in Burnett County. That's Robert Turner. I, I'm at privilege to, at this point, return to plain talk and uh, read it again because it's in, in bound volumes. I have uh, most of it, though all of it is available online. If you go to Cedar Park Church of Christ website, uh, they have uh, a complete archive of plain talk and, and please seek it out. It is a, a blessing. It's written a generation ago. It's 50 years old or more and yet still relevant and still poignant and still well, it, it touches on central issues. Sin hasn't changed all that much. The world hasn't really changed all that much. Christians haven't changed that much. Certainly the gospel hasn't changed. Jesus hasn't changed. The, the trappings of the world may change, but, but the world itself remains the same. It has since Solomon's day. Ecclesiastes chapter 1 tells us that. And because of that, we can look at truths that were given in a very specific context, the context of its day, especially in the 60s and 70s, specific things were going on, specific people at the heart of it. And it looks like it's just incredibly timely for that, that moment. But the same principles apply today. And I can go back now, 50 years afterward, and read Plain Talk and grow in my appreciation for God's Word, appreciation for my work and my responsibilities as a preacher, and in my calling as one who looks to somebody who is younger than me now. I, I recently wrapped up a, a book called Young But Not That Young. It's a study guide for, especially for 20-somethings, that takes us through First and Second Timothy and Titus and encourages the reader to, to see things from a perspective of somebody who is older. Like Timothy and Titus were looking to Paul. I turned 50 uh, a couple of years ago, and it kind of put all of this in my mind and reminded me how I look to Brother Turner and how I am now in position to look to people my children's age. And, and even younger than that, perhaps, to encourage them, to build them up, to share whatever limited amount of wisdom and experience I might have so that they can be profited from that. Now, they'll probably ignore my advice like I ignored 
my dad's advice and Robert Turner's advice and, and things of that nature. Twenty-somethings are just determined to make their own mistakes. That's just how we live as human beings, unfortunately. But maybe we can make it a little bit easier for the next generation. Maybe we can be a mentor. Maybe we can cushion the blows a little bit because life is hard. And as you grow, as you move into your 20s, when you think that now you have the world by the tail, now that you think you have all the answers, you're not an adolescent anymore. You're a grown-up. You've maybe graduated from college. Maybe you've gotten married. Maybe you're starting to have a family. And you think that now you've arrived and you're not treated like an adult. You're not treated like an equal by people 40 or 50 years your senior. And there's some resentment there. There's some pride issues there. And to a certain degree, that's something that older people need to work on. And to a certain degree, it's something that younger people need to work on also. Because we're all one family. And we all love the Lord. And we all love each other. And hopefully, by building relationships between generations, we can set ourselves up to perpetuate the gospel from this generation to the next and to the next beyond that. That's the process that Paul started with Timothy. He refers to it in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 2. The things which you heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust these to faithful men who will also be able to teach the who will be able to teach these to others also. So that's what that process starts going with Paul and with Timothy and Titus and, and on and on. It continues with Brother Turner and with me and with my children and it goes on and on. Every generation has the opportunity to be a mentor, to be a teacher, to be a guide for that younger generation. And we never stop learning because there's always someone more experienced than we are. There's always somebody who's wiser than we are. I'm still learning from my father. I'm still learning from Brother Turner. As we grow in our appreciation, as we grow in our experience, the more experience we acquire, the more we realize that we don't have as much experience as we thought we did. We don't have as much wisdom as we thought we did. And we crave the wisdom of those who are older. So hopefully we can put ourselves in position not only to learn from those who are older than we are, but also to seek out somebody who is younger than we are and to mentor them so that the generations can come together as the one body of Christ and that we can grow in love and appreciation and support for one another. Each one serving in the role that he or she is given by the Lord, growing into new roles, different roles, more important roles, perhaps more public roles, but all of us, regardless of circumstances, regardless of how old we happen to be or not be, appreciating the glory that exists in simply being a child of God, simply being part of this eternal kingdom of Jesus Christ, and being able to walk with the Lord and walk with saints of all ages, those we read about in the Bible, those who have gone before, those who are walking with us now, those who will walk us with us in the future. What a blessing it is to be a child of God. Anyway, that's what I've been reading. This is what I've been hearing. getting better. I would like to think that in every aspect of my life, I'm trying to be better today than I was yesterday, better this year than I was last year. Uh, I have not always been consistent in application of that concept. I think there is a sense in which until fairly recently, I had become somewhat complacent in the kind of preacher that I was, the kind of you know what I did well, what I didn't do well, what I was capable of, what I was not capable of. 
I was not especially interested in learning new skill sets, uh, branching out in tremendously new and innovative kind of directions. I was comfortable the person that I was, the preacher that I was, the and and content with that. Learning how to do what I was doing maybe uh, better than I had in the past, but not necessarily learning how to do new things. And I have been uh, taught and put to shame to a certain degree by a lot of my preaching brethren in the last two or three years, especially some of our younger preachers who are all about learning and all about branching out and all about taking advantage of new opportunities and new resources and new media, finding new and better ways of of accomplishing God's will in this life. And a big part of that is mining sources of information and data and research that are secular in nature that I have uh, largely tried to minimize in times past, perhaps, but that I'm growing an appreciation for in the modern day, that you can quote a secular source, you can go to a secular source, you can emphasize a a human uh, teacher who does not necessarily share our faith, who doesn't necessarily even regard the things of God, who may not be speaking to the things of God, but whose subject matter and whose expertise and whose training and research are relevant in our efforts to apply God's word to specific areas of application, uh, matters like money management, or uh, understanding Islam better, or research regarding abortion, or creationism, things of that nature that certainly have spiritual implications, that have moral implications. We can take information and data from other sources and use that effectively and become better preachers, become stronger Christians, more informed. Now, there's there's a caution there, and I want to exercise some caution with regard to that uh, before we just run pell-mell into mining these, these sources here. Ecclesiastes 12, verse 12, uh, Solomon told us long back before that the, the writing of books is endless. There There's no end of the number of places that we can go to find more information. And if we think that the key to preaching the gospel effectively is finding a new resource, finding a new podcast, finding a new website, uh, we are setting ourselves up for not only failure, but also disaster. And what I mean by that is whatever we do as preachers of the gospel, and when I say preachers, I don't mean necessarily pulpit preachers, anybody who is trying to proclaim the word of God to a lost and dying world. If you're going to your your family members or your neighbors, if you are hosting a Bible class in your in your home, or if you're simply raising your hand in a Bible study, it, whatever you're doing to help promulgate the teachings of Jesus Christ, it has to have Jesus' name on it. It has to have Jesus' face on it. And the more we sound like secular sources, the less we sound like Jesus. And, and this can be a very real danger that we run into, especially pulpit preachers, especially those who are taking a public eye, as it were, because there is a very real desire and to a certain degree a need for us to appear competent, for us to appear educated, for us to appear like we know what we're talking about, that that you need to listen to me because I am an expert in this field. There is some utility there. There's some value there. Hopefully not because we want to be the smartest person in the room for the sake of being the smartest, but we want to be well-informed. We want to be educated. And that can involve sources other than the Bible. But let's not go so far as to quit sounding like Jesus. That's that's my admonition as far as that goes. Uh, my go-to passage in such matters is always 1 Peter 4, verse 11, where Paul, uh, Peter writes here, Whatever whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. 
And what he means by that is not just that you need to quote a lot of scripture, although that's a perfectly relevant application of the concept. What he means is that when we are trying to save a lost and dying world, when we're trying to save sinners, we need to make sure that it is Jesus who is doing the saving and not we ourselves, and certainly not some secular source of information. We're not going to bring people to the gospel because we explained the horrors in the history of Islam or because we explain what exactly happens in a woman's womb before she uh, gives birth or what, ha- what, what exactly the, con- uh, the, the consequences are for, for digging into these uh, dinosaur bones and, and what they mean and what dating mechanisms mean and how flawed they might be or might not be. And, and those, those sort of things are relevant and I have no problem preaching about such things. But these things are not going to save souls. Jesus is going to save souls. And if we can draw attention to the gospel by using Dave Ramsey or by using Tony Robbins or by using Zig Ziglar or Dale Carnegie or or some of these other human beings who have offered a lot to their various fields in various ways, if we can use them and their approaches and their studies, then that's fine. But we don't want to sound like Dave Ramsey. We don't want to sound like Zig Ziglar. We want to sound like Jesus. And whatever we do, in word or deed, all things must reflect toward him. And if by delving into these secular sources we can we take away from the importance of the gospel, then we're doing ourselves, we're doing the Lord, and we're doing our audience a disservice. The power of God and salvation is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Always has been. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Romans 10 verse 17. Romans 1 verse 16. This is what we do to save souls. We tell people about Jesus. And if this turns into an ego exercise, then woe be to us. We may be able to save souls, but we'll lose our own in the process. We don't want to do that. We want to trust in Jesus always and allow him to ultimately gain all the glory. Anyway, that's what I've been hearing. If you want to stop listening at this point and go your way, I hope that you found the message instructive, inspiring, and most of all, faithful to God's word. Please don't forget to like, rate, share, subscribe, and follow. But if you stick around for a few more minutes, I would like to share with you a way to amuse yourself in a wholesome manner while waiting here in Satan's world, and perhaps pick up a spiritual point or two in the process. This is what I've been playing. If you have been to Casa Hammonds in the last couple of years, you don't need to have me explain to you what kind of a role board games and gameplay has taken on in the Hammonds house. It's it's something of a, uh, I want to stop short of saying the word obsession, that's not exactly what it is, but it is a very important part of our lives. We have been able to use board games as a, a way to entertain ourselves, to entertain our friends, our uh, church family. Uh, this is a way to bring people together in a, in a wholesome and, and thought-provoking kind of way. You might even grow in your, in your thinking process. I'm told by some people that uh, playing board games can help stave off the onset of Alzheimer's. I choose to believe that. I think that's a, a nice reality. I don't know if it's actual reality, but it's nice. And one way or the other, it helps get us away from a system of morality and entertainment that is contrary oftentimes, and even most times, to the principles that we read about in the Bible and helps us spend quality time with one another, having real conversations, having real 
interaction, real dialogue, and uh, growing in our love and appreciation for our, one another and a family and also for, for our neighbors and friends that come over. Uh, this has been, to a, one degree or another, my lifestyle ever since I can remember. I grew up playing board games. I grew up with Payday and, and Monopoly and Clue and Sorry and, and games of that nature, all of which now uh, fall under the general heading. Uh, board gamers like to use the, the derisive term roll and move games. What that means is that you roll a die and it comes up six and so you move six spaces and you do whatever you're entitled to do when you move six spaces and that's your turn. And that's that's what you do the entire game. And at the end of the day, you know, whoever wins and whoever loses. And I grew up thinking that's what games were. And I enjoyed that as far as that goes. But I will, looking back, I was a little frustrated that that one of the games is actually called Aggravation. And that's appropriate because if you don't get a one or a six, you're not able to do anything at all. And if you're playing Clue, for instance, there's something to do if you can move over into this other room and it's six spaces away. And so you roll and you get a one and you move one space and then you're done. And then it comes around to you again. You roll and you get a one and you move one space and you're done. And you're not doing anything. And that can be aggravating. That can be frustrating because you don't have any control. Because you don't have your your fate, as it were, is about 90% tied up in the roll of the die something that you have no control over. That can be very frustrating. That can be aggravating. And I can certainly understand why it would turn people off to the idea of board games. And so when the subject comes up in the modern day, in a modern context, when people ask me about the games that I like and such, I, I try to emphasize this, that you do not have to play that sort of game. If that's what you like. That's your business, I suppose. But to me, it seems like almost a waste of time to try to engage in this activity that has nothing to do with me, has nothing to do with my choices, has nothing to do with my preferences or my, my wisdom or my judgment or, or lessons I've learned or anything like that. I'm just going where the die tells me to go. I don't find that especially uh, amusing, especially when I realize now in the modern day that I don't have to do that, that I have choices that I can make, that there are games out there that reward me for thinking, that reward me for good choices, that allow me to mitigate my luck because there are, Oftentimes there is a die roll. There are you know, flips of cards and, and things that come up, and sometimes it's not all good. But I can put myself in a position where the bad luck is not quite as bad or the good luck is even better if I'm smart enough, if I play the game properly. And if I don't play the game properly, it's not the game's fault. It's my fault. And that's the way I want it. I want to have control over the game that I'm playing. And I certainly want to have control over the life that I'm living, and particularly the life that I'm living in the Lord, the life that I'm living before God. And this is the main point that I wanted to make here with regard to, to such things, because I greatly fear that there are a lot of people in our society, a lot of people in our culture who think that their lifestyle, their, their lies in spiritual things is just the role of a die. They have no choice in the matter. It's just however it happens to turn out. They just happen to be blessed or they happen to be cursed. That's just where they are in life and they don't have any control over that. And, and I want to emphasize to people and I want to emphasize to you, you do not have to live that kind of life. That if you want a relationship with God, God wants to have a relationship with you. You can take control over this. That's what Paul means in Philippians 2 verse 12 when he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. If you want to be right with God, you can be right with God. I know that there are philosophies in the religious world that deny that, but the Bible teaches this, that your standing before God is your choice. You can decide to be a Christian. You can decide to be a strong Christian. You can decide to be a joyful Christian. Paul says, 
Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. He says that while he's in prison, while he is shackled to a Roman guard. He's rejoicing. Philippians 4 verse 4. If he can rejoice, why can't I? Why can't you? This is a choice that you and I can make if we decide to make it. We do not have to live as prisoners of fate. You can make your own destiny. You can decide for yourself whether you want to go to heaven or to hell. Moses told the Israelites in the wilderness, he sets before them life and death. He says, choose life. Well, why in the world wouldn't you choose life? That's always confused me. Why would you choose death? And yet people do. Is it because they're too fearful? Is it because they don't have any confidence in themselves? Is it because they they don't really believe God when he talks? I don't know what it is exactly. Maybe different things for different people. But I do know this, that if you trust in God, if you fear God, like we were talking about earlier, if you really believe in his word and the power of God and salvation to everyone who believes, you can take hold of the gospel of Jesus Christ and you can allow it to carry you into a better place in this life and a heavenly place after this life is over. It is entirely up to you. If you want to be a strong prayer, then pray. If you want to be a strong worshiper, then worship. If you want to strengthen your faith, then strengthen it. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Romans 10 verse 17. Study God's word. You have the power to do it. Nobody's keeping you from it. God's certainly not keeping you from it. What a wonderful blessing it is to live in a society where we have choices, where God will allow you to be lost or allow you to be saved. So choose to be saved. Choose a lifestyle where you have control and then exercise that control in a God direction. Anyway, that's what I've been playing. Thank you for listening to the Citizen of Heaven podcast. If you profited from your time here, I have a few requests of you. Please pray for me and for this work. We need more citizens of heaven, and our prayer is that we be part of achieving this objective. Please subscribe to the podcast and give us a good rating on iTunes or other sites that allow you to do such things, and spread the word to your friends. Please follow my work through my website, www.halhammons.com. There you will find links to articles, videos, and books of mine. Seek me out on social media. You can find me on Instagram, YouTube, and especially Facebook. Look for me and for my pages, The Final Word, The Preacher, and 20 pages a week. Until next time, be strong and courageous, fight the good fight of faith, and do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is Hal Hammonds, the Citizen of Heaven, signing off.